Luke 22, and I'll read verses 1 through 13. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you humbled that we have the privilege to hear you speak to us. Lord, help us to not forsake your word, to not abandon your word. But Father, help us this morning to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see, and to submit our lives to what you say to us. Help us to see the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, revealed to us in your word. It's in his name we pray, amen. We are picking up uh, the Gospel of Luke again, and uh, we're at the very beginning of what is known as uh, Luke's passion narrative uh, in his Gospel. The next two chapters of Luke's Gospel will focus on the suffering of Christ, uh, or called the Passion of Christ in his crucifixion. And uh, it is almost as if we can sense the change as we enter into uh, these verses or this section of the gospel. Uh, I spent some time at Hidden Acres uh, this summer, uh, the Bible camp in Iowa where uh, I served uh, in college. And the camp is uh, full of different paths uh, leading to uh, the different um, uh, buildings and areas of the camp, uh, the cabins for the camp are all back uh, in the woods uh, with uh, a walking path of crushed gravel leading up to each one of them. And every morning uh, during camp, uh, the counselors lead their cabin groups along those paths of crushed rock towards the dining hall for one of Hidden Acres' famous breakfasts. And they follow each path of crushed, wa- uh, crushed rock uh, from their cabins until they all get uh, to the main walking path that is paved with concrete. And the kids don't even, don't even have to look down to, to see that path. They can, they can just feel the difference immediately when they get on the concrete. And once they feel that change, well, they know they are getting close. 
just a few more steps on that sidewalk, they begin to smell the freshly baked cinnamon rolls and the bacon emanating from the, the dining hall. It's almost as if they're beginning to walk on holy ground. And as a little like us this morning, as we begin to walk through this portion of Luke's gospel that will lead us directly to the cross. We can, we can almost sense it. These verses, these two chapters will, will feel very different than the other chapters. This is definitely some holy ground for us to begin to walk on this morning. Maybe we should remove our shoes. We should at least pay more careful attention as we listen to God's word here. Now, if you were paying attention, then you would have noticed the main theme of the passage as I was reading it. That is of the Passover. Luke mentions the Passover specifically five different times in these 13 verses, and it is at the time of the Passover that there are two different preparations taking place by two different groups of people here in the first 13 verses. Look there at verses 1 through 6. There, right after Luke informs us that the Passover was drawing near, he tells us about the preparations that the chief priests and the scribes were making. They were making preparations uh, for how they were going to kill Jesus. That was what they were preparing for, how they could get Jesus killed. So there is evil afoot here. And then looking at verses 7 through 13, there's another group of men also making preparations. Jesus and the disciples. Peter and John were making preparations to celebrate the Passover meal. Even though Peter and John will do most of the preparations, Jesus is definitely the one who is in charge here. We can see that. We see him giving specific instructions to them about how they are to prepare for the Passover. And so two different groups of men, both preparing for the Passover in two different ways, but there is one man at the center of both preparations. That man is Jesus. This passage then is about Jesus and the Passover or what the Passover has to do with Jesus. And our main theme then is the Passover's greatest significance was in pointing to Jesus as the lamb who would be slain so God's people would live. Passover's greatest significance was in pointing to Jesus as the lamb who would be slain so God's people would live. So these two different preparations for, for Passover with Jesus at the center make up the structure for our passage uh, and our sermon this morning. If you have uh, the outline uh, in front of you from the bulletin, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see that pretty clearly. If, if you don't have that outline in front of you, then I'm letting you know that's how the sermon's going to be organized. Verses 1 through 6 is the first pre preparation. And then verse 7, Jesus at the middle of it. And then verses 8 through 13, the second group of of uh, preparations. So, first, verse 1 through 6, at the time of the Passover, the spiritual leaders prepared to put Jesus to death. 
verses 1 through 6 again. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Now, the Jewish historian uh, Josephus, uh, writing uh, in the first century, uh, estimated that over 2.7 million Jews would gather in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration uh, during this time period. Uh, Most of the 2.7 million at this time would have been making preparations for the Passover. They'd make sure that they had enough food and wine and would have to stand in line at the temple uh, with the lamb that they would have the priests sacrifice for them, which would also provide the meat for their Passover meal. Uh, At the same time, as all of those preparations were being made to celebrate and to remember the Lord's great deliverance of God's people from Egypt, the chief priests, it says, and the scribes, had another matter on their minds. Rather than preparing for this festival of remembrance of God's great act of saving grace for them, they were conspiring on how they could put Jesus to death. This wasn't the first time we have seen men wanting to kill Jesus in Luke's gospel. Um, We look look back in chapter 4, There, uh, when Jesus was teaching in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he said a few things about himself and about the people who, of course, fully believed that they were God's chosen people. And in response to what Jesus said about them, they tried to kill him by throwing him off of a cliff. So this isn't new. In fact, Luke has been preparing us for this thing, these men trying to kill Jesus since the very beginning of his gospel, when when Mary and Martha, uh, I'm sorry, Mary and Joseph, brought the baby Jesus uh, to the temple to offer their sacrifices for his birth, according to the law, they met Simeon. Simeon turned out to be a prophet. He had long been promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah with his own eyes before he would die. And when he saw Jesus, this, this, this young infant, uh, in the arms of Mary, he knew this is the one. This is the Christ. God fulfilled his promise, as he does with every promise he makes. So Simeon then, then told Mary that this child, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's what he said to Jesus' mother about Jesus. And here we see in Luke 22 what Simeon was talking about. Jesus, God's son, was being Opposed, strongly opposed. And the shocking thing for us in this passage is 
who his primary opponents were. The chief priests, it says. The chief priests who were the greatest spiritual authorities for God's chosen people. And the scribes. The scribes who were the primary teachers of God's law to God's people. And then in verse 3, you'll be one of Jesus' closest followers. One whom Jesus himself had chosen and called to follow him as a disciple. So when Simeon said that the thoughts from many hearts would be revealed because of Jesus, we are seeing that the thoughts of the hearts of these religious leaders were exposed. They're exposed as actually being against God rather than for him. In their hearts, they hated God. And that's now being exposed through their conspiracy to kill God's only son. But they had a problem with their plan to kill Jesus. Again, there were over two and a half million pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and they knew a lot of them were pro-Jesus. They didn't want to do anything that might spark a riot or put them in any danger from the pro-Jesus crowds. So Luke tells us in 21, 37 through 38, the two verses just before chapter 22 begins, that Jesus had been teaching in the temple every day uh, in the week prior, and it says, all the people came to hear him. All the people came to Jesus to hear him teach. They knew they couldn't touch him while he was in the temple teaching like this. They needed an opportunity when there wouldn't be so many people around him. Therefore, they needed someone to help them. They needed someone on the inside of his group. Someone that, that knew his movements. Someone that could help to lead them to him when there weren't so many people around. And that's why they're so happy, they're glad, when Judas came to them offering to hand Jesus over to them. Here they are, scheming, planning, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get him? How are we going to kill him? At a time when we won't be confronted with the pro-Jesus people that are surrounding him, it seems like all the time, how can we do this? And then all of a sudden, boom, Judas walks in, offering to hand Jesus over to them. They are happy. Now let's think about this for a minute. There are times, believe it or not, when those of us who think we are following God have a desire to do something evil. We have a desire in our hearts to do something evil. But, of course, we have convinced ourselves that it's actually something good. It's something that's good. It's not only something that we want to do, but we think it's something that is best. Something that's sinful, but we think, no, you know what, this really is something that's best. However, we have a problem. Our problem is we just can't figure out a way to do this without the wrong people thinking ill of us or opposing us and keeping us from being successful at going through with our plan. 
So we have a problem. How are we going to accomplish this? How, how are we going to satisfy this desire that we have to do this thing? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, an opportunity just drops in our lap. An opportunity just presents itself that we never anticipated, which would allow us, we believe, to get away with it. And what do we attribute our good fortune to? The Lord has opened a door. The Lord has opened a door. This must be from the Lord. He must be, be leading us. No, no doubt that that is exactly what the high priests and scribes were thinking when Judas walked in and made his offer. What good fortune. The Lord must be blessing our plans. Oh, the Lord is with us. So beware. Beware, friends. Whenever you are devising evil, you will never lack an opportunity to follow through with your evil desires. But it won't be from the Lord. It will not be from the Lord leading you there, but it will be the devil setting the trap for you. For who was behind Judas going to the chief priests and scribes to hand Jesus over? We're shown that in verse 3, and I think it's something that we need to think about. So look at verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, and he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. So what's going on here? You know, can, can, can Satan just, just do this? Can, can Satan just enter into somebody? Was, was Judas under Satan's complete control here? Is this, is this the only reason why Judas betrays Jesus? Was it because Satan was in control of Judas's will, of his body, of his mind? Well, we need to look at the, at the passage. What does it say here in the text? Again, verse 4 says, He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. He, Judas, went away. He went away. Away from who? Away from Jesus. He went away from Jesus. He went away from the other disciples. Judas went away from them. He separated himself from them. The text says Judas did that himself. Not that Satan led him away. This was, this was Judas's idea, and he took the initiative. He went away. Whenever you separate yourself from Jesus and from God's people, you're in trouble. And then verse, verse 6, look what it says in verse 6. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. He consented. That word shines a lot of light on what was going on in Judas's heart here. He consented. Judas consented to work for the opponents of Jesus to be paid by them for betraying him into their hands. He consented to it. He was not forced into it by them or by Satan. Luke seems to hold Judas responsible for his own actions. But yet, verse 3 still says, Satan entered into Judas. So what do we make of that? Can, can Satan just enter into anyone he pleases? 
Can he just, you know, pick some faithful, godly church member one Sunday morning in order to cause trouble for the church and their witness for Jesus? Is that how it works? Can Satan just come into anyone he pleases at any time to cause problems, to cause trouble, to get people killed? Are we all just helpless against the powers of the evil one? Well, the Bible's clear answer is, is no. No, Satan is not sovereign. He is not sovereign. God is. Satan cannot have his way with us. Yet, he can most certainly have influence over us if we allow him that power, that authority. What we are shown from Judas here in these verses is that he had a will to join the opposition against Jesus for what primary reason? What is the primary reason that Luke shows us in this passage, verse 5, and they were glad and agreed to give him money? It was for financial gain. Now, let's recall one of the warnings that Judas would have heard Jesus give to the disciples uh, back in chapter 16, verse 13. This is something that Judas probably heard Jesus say quite often uh, in his teaching. Um, Chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So which master was Judas devoted to here? It wasn't Satan. Not devoted to to, to master Satan. It was money. Judas' devotion to his own financial gain did not just take him away from faithfully following Christ. It opened him up to satanic influence. He began to serve the one and despise the other. God's word commands us in both 1 Peter chapter 5 and James chapter 4 to resist the devil. Resist the devil. And he, it says, will flee from you. And what we see happening here to Judas is he didn't resist. He did not resist. So brothers and sisters, do not give the enemy a foothold. Take seriously our Lord's warning. You cannot serve both God and money or any other master. You can't think you're safe in Christ when you are pursuing a sinful lifestyle or a sinful attitude. Don't allow anger Envy, pride, or bitterness to take up residence in your heart without resistance. That will open yourself up to the enemy. And, and this, that, 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 that will give him a foothold in your life. And if you give him an inch, he will take a mile. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God in humility and repentance and God will draw near to you. Verse 7, 
At the Passover, a lamb had to be slain in order to save the people. Verse 7 shows us this in the middle of our two different preparations that we have going on here. We have this, this verse that emphasizes what must take place on the Passover. Look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Uh, this uh, ESV translation is better than other modern uh, uh, English translations for this verse because it does emphasize that the lamb had to be sacrificed. It's something that was necessary. It had to be done. But I think the King James Version is an even better translation for this verse for it uses an even stronger word which helps us to see the point that Luke is making here a little more clear. In the King James Version, it says, Then came the day of the, of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb must be killed. It was not just something that, that had to happen. It must happen. The lamb must be killed. It must be given up as a sacrifice and die on behalf of the people. So the Passover was, of course, the celebration that pointed back to the Lord's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Uh, uh, more specifically, it was a night when the Lord delivered the firstborn of Israel from death. For the Lord had sent his angel of death into Egypt to kill the firstborn of every household. But he instructed his own people to kill a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes so that when the angel of death came, he would see the blood and would then pass over those homes and their firstborn sons would be spared. In essence, God mercifully accepted the sacrificial death of the Passover lamb as a substitute for the firstborn of the house. The lamb would die instead of the firstborn son. The lamb would give his life so that the son could live. It was something that must happen if the sons of Israel were to survive the night. Now, immediately after showing us how the religious leaders were planning on killing Jesus, Luke reminds us, then came the day of the unleavened bread when the Passover lamb must be killed. So Luke is showing us that Jesus was going to be the Passover lamb that must die for God's people to live. Or if we think of God's people as his sheep, which uh, Jesus refers to his followers as, uh, especially in John chapter 10, then this is showing us that, that God gave his firstborn son to be killed as a sacrifice so that all of the sheep could live. Now, this doesn't hit us as it should. We all know Christ died for our sins. We are reminded of this all the time. We, we, we walk in here on Sunday morning, we, we, we see the big cross on the wall, and we think almost nothing of it. It's old news to us. But think of what it must have been like for those Israelites in Egypt. They had witnessed God in, in, do, do incredibly powerful acts already before the Passover time came. The plagues of frogs, the plagues of bugs, Hail, darkness would have gotten their attention. They would have smelled the stench of all of the carcasses of the Egyptian livestock who were killed as a result of a few of those plagues. And now they are told, the Lord will send the angel of death into Egypt 
in order to kill the firstborn son of every household. God's terrifying judgment will fall upon the land, but there was a way of escape. There was a way for their sons to be saved, but it would take a sacrifice. It would take the shedding of blood, which simply points to the death of this sacrificial animal. The lamb must be killed, and their sons would be saved. So how do you think they would have felt about that promise? How do you think they would have felt about it early the next morning when they woke up to the screams and loud wails of all the households of Egypt who found their sons dead? And they would run into the bedrooms or the places where their sons were sleeping and find them alive and well. Alive and well. Because the Passover lamb that they killed died instead. So friends, the Bible says that we are all under the threat of God's judgment. We all stand before him in judgment, condemned under our own sins, our own rebellion, our own disobedience. We are all guilty of sin and unbelief before the holy God. We have all committed the very evil acts that God's word warns us will deserve his wrath. We were born in sin. We've all willingly pursued sin in our lives. And we've all had wicked and evil thoughts and words against God and others. Our hearts, it says, will be revealed before God in the judgment where we will be exposed for who we really are. So will any of us be able to stand before him? Only those, only those who are covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Only those who who look to Jesus and trust in him as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So have you done that? Have you looked to the lamb of God? Have you you trusted in his work on your behalf, his, his saving work? Are you looking to Jesus as the only hope that you have for salvation? before the holy God who will hold you accountable for your sin and rebellion. He died in your place. He had to be sacrificed for you to be forgiven. Let us come to him. Let us come to him and worship him and love him with all of our hearts and serve him with all that we have. Finally, the last group of of, uh, uh, preparations being done here, verses 8 through 13, the Lord Jesus made sure the Passover would be prepared for his people. Verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So Luke now shows us the the second group of men making preparations, and it should remind us of the preparations that were made for Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem back in chapter 19. Once again, Jesus is sending two disciples 
to get things ready for him, and he provides very specific instructions, or you could call them predictions, of, of whom they will meet and how they will find the very place that they are to go. And the disciples followed the Lord's instructions, for verse, uh, verse 13 tells us they went and found it just as he told them. The word of the Lord is trustworthy. It always proves true, as these disciples have seen over and over again. So Luke is showing us once again that Jesus is not just some helpless victim of the events that the chief priests and religious authorities are orchestrating around him. He is not at all acting like the coming events of the next two days will come as any surprise to him. How is he acting here? He's acting like he is the one who is in charge. Like everything is falling into place according to a predetermined plan that he knows everything about. A great evil is afoot, as we saw in verses 1 through 6, and Jesus is fully aware of that. He's not running away from it. But he has set his face to move towards it and to bear the brunt of it for his people and for you and me. Luke recorded three different occasions in his gospel where Jesus told his disciples exactly what would be happening to him in Jerusalem. Uh, We're going to take a look at one of those back in chapter 9. So chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. This uh, takes place right after Peter's confession that uh, uh, Jesus is the Christ of God. And so verse 21, Jesus says, or it says, uh, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He repeats that in uh, verses 44 and 45 of chapter 9. He then reminds his disciples again of that very thing in chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Jesus knew. He knew what was coming. He knew who would be involved. And as he said in in chapter 18, verse 31, it had all been written about previously in the scriptures. And the scriptures must be fulfilled. And that points us back to the Passover. As J.C. Ryle wrote in his comments on this passage, The death of Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover. He was the true sacrifice to which every Passover lamb had been pointing for 1,500 years. What the death of the lamb had been to Israel and Egypt, his death, that is Christ's death, was to be to sinners all over the world. The safety which the blood of the Passover lamb had provided for Israel, his blood was to provide far more abundantly for all that believed in him. As Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Jesus and and the disciples were about to encounter the darkest, longest, most evil night the world had ever endured. The Son of God would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men who would then rush through this makeshift illegal trial 
to get him crucified as a traitor, in order to make Jesus look like he was condemned by God, to make him look like a fraud in front of all the people. It would be incredibly shocking and terrifying to the disciples and to those who love Jesus. They couldn't imagine anything worse happening at that time. And it was going to be all according to the plan of their Lord. He was in control. It would all result in his vindication and their deliverance. This was for their good. This should really teach us something, friends. When you find yourself faced with a long, dark, even evil night, maybe just not a night, maybe a season of darkness, discouragement, things not going well. When you are in the midst of a time when you you can't imagine anything worse happening to you, when it seems like the Lord has, has turned his back on you or left you to fend for yourself, remind yourself of the Passover lamb. Remind yourself of his promises. Like in Romans 8, 28, where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. They went, it says, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. A Passover that our Lord had been preparing for for all of eternity. That plan all came together exactly as it was supposed to, which resulted in our salvation. So his plan to work for your good in whatever discouraging and painful situation that you might be in right now will also come together exactly as he planned it will for your good. So let's trust him. Let's worship him. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Our Father, we we pray that you would help us. Lord, it's hard for us to trust in your promises when we are in the midst of darkness. It's hard to trust that you really are at work when it seems like everything is spinning out of control. But Father, Lord, when we hear these words and we see what happened to your son, we know that you can work through the darkest of things in order to bring us the greatest of goods. The Son of God was killed so that we would live and live for all eternity. May our hope be in Jesus and our eyes be fixed on him as we follow him for the rest of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we we pray, amen.